let's speak as though our relationship will continue. So we talk about when you do get off academic recovery, when you do come back next fall, when you do change your major, or when you do find a major you like, right? Like all of the ways we're going to say, I'm always saying, I want for us to say to our freshmen, look around when we graduate, this is the group of people it's going to be right. So the ways that we're saying, Hey, move from, this is a person on the outside who's threatening to me to this connection brain Um, and connected brain is when your brain understands we are close. I am safe. We have a future together. everybody. You have joined us for episode 44 of Cap and Gown. I'm Rachel Phillips-Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources, joined today by Matt Boisvert, our president. Good afternoon, Rachel. Good afternoon. This is Go episode ahead. 44. I said that. Yeah. More importantly, it's April. It is April. Hallelujah. Your red buds are out. Spring is here. Um, I'm reminded this week about spring fever, like it's literal spring fever, like in Texas, it's cedar fever and everybody feels a little bit awful. (laughs) So you have to like temper, everything's blooming and everything's turning green with gross, like you feel gross. So there's that, that's the upside to spring. Yeah, it's green, getting green. Yeah, so sure. Hey friends, good to see you. Um, I am so excited. I mean, maybe I say that every time, but like, I'm really, really excited about what we're talking about today. You've got Um, a great one today. Yes, and I have a sneak peek for everybody. So I'm gonna, of course, do State of the Union. We've got a lot of stuff going on, but my sneak peek is that we have been talking for years and years and years about sense of belonging. And I have just started reading a book, which I've told you about before, but now I'm like into it. Like it's the book I'm reading right now. And it has cast sense of belonging in a totally unique way that I've never heard of before. And I think it's going to be super helpful to us as we're trying to build it into our campuses and our student experiences. Yeah, it's a great book. And it was not really written for universities. No. It's, not it's, at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a sneak peek. So stick with us because it's <laughs> going to be awesome. Um, all right. But let's do State of the Union. So we have a couple of interesting things going on. I don't know, Matt, did you read this article about the NCAA's existential crisis and how they're supposed to have great answers for us soon? Did you read this? I have not read this one. Okay. Well, it's a pretty harsh uh synopsis of the NCAA. So they're like, hey, you guys were on the wrong side of the likeness issue. Then you've had decades of failing to enforce rules that were being broken with impunity and then failing to quickly prosecute the laws that you could catch being broken. Yeah. But like you basically didn't do anything. And then when you found somebody who was doing something wrong, you're like, oh, sorry. Although I will say for many of our schools who are smaller schools, the NCAA sure did come over, come after them for little yeah. things. Yeah. I can think of some pretty harsh penalties for yeah. a few of our smaller schools. Yeah. So, okay. So people are not super happy with what they've done. However, 
August 1st, the NCAA is expected to implement massive changes. Um, first of all, they are focused on infractions and enforcement, namely modernizing the rules. So the hope is that that's going to have a quicker pace for resolutions for infractions and then a general desire to stop majoring in minors. So like, hey, let's not go crazy. Like, let's take care of the really big things. Yeah. Um, a spokesperson says we're really good at making rules, but not as good at deleting them. So this is like, hey, can we come into the modern age? Like, let's figure that out. So that's going to be interesting. Okay. But um, also, so then the second thing is they want to invest in support for athletes. What I think is so interesting is that they couldn't do the work themselves. So they decided the best thing to do was to ask for congressional help on crafting the national NIL legislation. So they went to the Department of Justice and said, hey, um, we think that you should be able to go after our NCAA officials if we don't do what we're supposed to be doing. And shockingly, the DOJ was like, yes, you're right. So we don't know what that's going to mean. Like now all of a sudden they're under the DOJ in terms of enforcement, which is very interesting. That is very interesting. And then also you will remember years and years ago when we were in school that athletics directors were like the primary person who was responsible for following all the NCAA stuff. Then there were so many infractions, they moved away and they said, no, the president is liable for any infractions. Now they're like, hey, that was a bad idea. We're going to give it back to the athletics director. It just, it's fine. We're just going to make them more powerful and take presidents out of that whole equation. So there's actually a lot of question on whether or not August 1st is actually like, can they deliver something? Can they get there? Yeah. So that will be yeah. interesting. I think it's about time. I don't, I don't think anybody, including the NCAA thinks they're doing a great job. So, right. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Also a really interesting article in, um, higher education about student affairs workforce faces retention issues. Yeah. So there's some interesting conclusions in that article, but the like general idea is that early and mid career student official, blah, 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 early and mid career student official affairs professionals are leaving the field for other work environments. Um, that this is coming out of NASPA. 88% of professionals surveyed said a lack of competitive salaries in comparison to the jobs required experience in education might contribute to people leaving, which is interesting. Like, not that it is, but it might, it might be contributing to people leaving. Not us, of course, but, it, you know, some people that might bother them. Um, and then also their recommendations are like, hey, you need to collaborate at all levels to improve your workforce uh, satisfaction and retention. This is pretty standard across a lot of different service industries. Um, we're just having to rethink kind of what's the value proposition for our workers. And like we keep saying, like people who are in higher education want to be around people and want to be helpful to them. They don't want to be doing Zoom and working from home and those sorts of things. So I think it's interesting. It'll be uh, interesting to see moving forward what happens. Well, we've definitely heard from a number of our schools people who just were feeling like we've talked about burnt out um, looking for even, you know, just, just to kind of get out of the environment they were in. And I think, Hey, I think this is why today's topic is so important. Um, the book that we're talking about and the, the content of that is, is so important. Like how to 
recover, how to, how to build an environment where people want to work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I just took a flight there, which is like, people want to work, but they want to do the work that they picked, right? And not this other kind of stuff that's like, difficult and not what they signed up for. And so, you know, Matt, as we're talking about our theme for this year and change, we keep coming back to because what we're doing is not sustainable. And so we have to figure out how to, you know, we've been saying to our team, like, tell us the things that you have to do that you hate and let us figure out how to make those easier or better or find somebody else who would like to. I was just talking to one of our team members the other day who was like, I hate this part of my job and no one will ever want to do it. Like, it's a terrible part of the job. And I was like, hey, so-and-so would love to do that job. And he was like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, that's why we're all made that differently. That reminds me, Rachel, of your, <laughs> of your mopping and sweeping story. Yeah. Like, there are people who love the job you hate. Yeah, so. the, the short of that is when I worked at a bakery, the worst job was mopping. And so every night you have to sweep and then you have to mop. And I would always mop because I was like, it's the worst job. I want to like support my team. And so I would do it. And finally, one night my coworker was like, how come you always get to mop? And I was like, get to mop. It's like the worst job. And she was like, I hate sweeping. And I was like, I hate mopping. I'm so glad we had this conversation, right? Like, how about if I sweep and you mop and then we'll be in a good, good position. So yeah, everyone's right. made a little bit differently. And there's all things that we love doing and our team members who might be like, I don't want to do that, but I want to do this other thing. So, huh. Okay. Continuing on the State of the Union, um, there's a really great article in said higher ed called Clearing the Final Obstacle to a Degree. It's about um, when Georgia State University administrators realizing realized they were barring about a thousand students from enrollment every semester because they owed the university money. Yep. And they were like, this doesn't make any sense. So they started the Panther Retention Grant Program, which covers those unpaid balances for students. There are some criteria, like you have to be in good academic standing, you have to have a GPA of 2.0 or higher, um, and you have to be at risk of being dropped from the rolls because of outstanding debts of $2,500 or less. What I love about this is if you fit all that criteria, you don't have to apply, you automatically receive it. So it's like Braden saying like, why do we make people apply for graduation when we know that they're gonna graduate? Why would we make them apply for this grant when we know it's gonna be helpful to them, right? Yeah. Um, originally they were given out to mostly first year students, but they've kind of transitioned that to go to a majority of uh, seniors. So in the first year they awarded 214 grants and over the last, I think it started in um, 2011 to continue to grow, they've awarded more than 10,000 grants. Um, this is just talking about how important it is to help our students graduate quickly, because even if they take the time off to then pay their balance to then, you know, eventually come back, the money that they lose because they're in an extra semester, an extra summer or whatever, and they're always behind, right? And they're accruing more debt. So super, super important. Also, it's really interesting because there's a lot of disagreement about whether the dollars are better served going to freshmen or seniors. So some people are saying, we need to do it for our freshmen because that's going to get them over the hump to then be successful. And then other people are saying, yeah, but seniors, you're just trying to solve such a specific problem um, that then is going to help them uh, get into their graduation. So Lisa, I'm so happy yeah. to hear that. She's saying like, yeah, I, we need to look at this and see how we can do this for our students. It's such a small thing. And I'll tell you that I think alumni would totally get behind it. 
I think if you had a campaign where you were just like, hey, would you give $500 so that our seniors can come back and graduate a semester early? I think they would love to do that. Yeah, I think the research on it, as they were looking at the amount of time it saves, how much quicker someone who uh, benefited from that grant. And again, that that is when, as we get into our content today, and we're talking about empathy um, and, and really delivering for those students who have this unmet, they, they can't meet the financial need. And they're like, there should not be a barrier to yeah. you completing your degree here. So great. I love it. Okay. I have three more. There's okay. a re- there's a really interesting editorial called College Rankings Are Misleading, So Why Do We Still Use Them? Which, Matt, you will remember that I had an article a couple of weeks ago that someone was like, hey, when you start chasing the ranking and start forgetting who you are, that's when you have a really big problem because then you fall into the murky middle. You may be ranked higher, but you're not getting more students. You get more expensive, right? So this article is really interesting because um, it talks about, first of all, I don't know if you saw this. There was a professor at Columbia University that's challenging the data that the Ivy League school reported to the U.S. News and World Report. The school got a number two ranking this year, but he basically was like, hey, I think that we made up a lot of that data. I don't think that that's true. So that's a whole scandal. There's so much of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, The ousted dean of Temple University received a 14-month sentence after he was convicted in federal court of sending bogus information to the U.S. News and World Report about to boost the school's prestige. Like, they just have a list of all of these ways that these have been manipulated and are not trustworthy, right? But then also they're saying, hey, these do not help families pick schools. For example, a much less expensive school might offer an equal or better education than a more highly ranked one that's costlier. So, you know, like as a parent, when you're trying to pick schools, the way that a school is getting a ranking is not necessarily the best way to pick your college. It says, um, Few college applicants are aware that the single biggest factor the U.S. News uses to rank schools is their reputation among officials at other colleges who may or may not have deep knowledge of the schools. That's 20% of your ranking score. So it's basically like, does the provost at this school know your school that you're working at? If no, then that's 20% of your score. That doesn't help me. Right. That's not actually saying anything about value or community or education or any of that. Um, They also talked a lot about uh, this idea of um, what you should be looking at is the time period it takes you to graduate, um, how much value you're getting out of the school. Um, they made some positive changes in recent years. It dropped the, the student acceptance rate as one of the criteria. Can you guess why that's terrible criteria to judge a school? Because basically they all marketed heavily to students, even if they had almost no chance of acceptance, because then they were able to say, we got this number of applications, but we only accepted this. So we're more exclusive. So someone was like, maybe that's not the best measure. Oh yeah, whatever. Okay. So lots of issues with that, right? I just can't imagine that in the coming years, that's going to, whatever. I, I think it's a scam. Well, I, I mean, a lot of people have done research on how to boost their school's rankings. For know. sure. Yeah, um, especially when you're depending on data coming from, from the school. I, you know, I, well, a school I love, school we serve, 
sent a cute, the best book ever to my son to recruit him to come to this school. 23 reasons why you would love this institution. You know what, Rachel? Their rank was not listed in the 23 reasons. Hmm. Thought maybe you said something about them. They, they actually- That's not what they're doing. They were just talking about what they deliver. Yeah. So. I'm so glad you they worked that in. On, they don't put Listen, rank you guys, on Lomas. Matt has had this book on his desk for the last like four days. He keeps wanting to talk to me about it. And I'm like, I can't talk to you about it. I have things to do. So I'm so happy he got to talk to all of you about it. And I'm surprised you don't have it to show to everybody. All right. It's pretty cute. It's It's fine. Right over there. Okay. Stick with me. Two more things. One is there's a great conversation in higher ed dive about how trustees need to oversee equitable student successes. So it's a conversation with two, um, with the president, I think a couple of presidents, former president that basically is like, Hey, you guys just started this grant to encourage trustees to take some interest in student success. And so um, one of the questions they ask him is, what questions should the board ask themselves if they want to focus on student outcomes? The answer, um, they should ask whether enough academic support exists, how the curriculum is structured, what is the faculty's disposition, which I think is such an interesting question. Like, yeah. if you ask on a campus, what is your faculty's disposition, what would they say? Very interesting. Yeah. Um, what are the support structures of the classroom? How do we enable a strong enough sense of belonging that students feel like, feel like part of the college's family? Also, what are challenges of getting the board to take, want, take on equity? Um, the answer is one of the issues we've been dealing with is that the board has not always engaged on topics, even when their institutions do. So in order for an institution to transform, the board has to be knowledgeable and supportive, and in some case, cases leading parts of the work, this requires a conversation on the board to say, how are you putting on your equity lens on your structures, your processes, your membership? Um, and then what is the board's responsibility? We can't just say, um, the answer is we can't just say, if we can get our students of color to graduate at the same rate as our white students, we can achieve equitable student outcomes. But if you have a 62% graduation rate, then what have you actually accomplished? What we mean by equitable student success is that everything that can be done inside an institution to maximize the capability of each and every student is what ought to be done, which I really love. So I think it's an interesting question as like, middle talent and practitioners are working really hard in student success and retention. How is our board facilitating that and making sure that we have our eye on this idea of equitable um, student success? I just think starting with awareness, most likely the board, I mean, if you think about one thing that I love about our SPARK reports is how our schools start to look forward to those that they can, they can show the board how they're making progress in these, in these areas to make it more equitable. But then that that's the first time the board's ever seen that kind of information. For sure. Yeah. A lot of cases. Okay. And then the last one, this is about a school we serve, Centenary, um, which is in New Jersey, Hackettstown. Um, hello, Michelle, if you're listening. Um, they just started the first ever master's program in happiness studies, which we I all, love. We all need to enroll in that. Yeah, so it's going to be mostly online. They had 87 applications in 12 days. 
what I think is really interesting is that there's like this part of studying happiness that's going to help students, quote, become more resilient and provides us with the tools to deal with normal vicissitudes as well as challenges. But what I think is really interesting is this quote that says there's going to be a need for people who have scholarly training to be able to think about and discuss and work on issues relevant to the human experience. So it's really interesting when you think about like, hey, we need to have some scholarship on happiness after the past two years. Like, hey, scholars, tell us what we need to do <laughs> to increase our happiness and enjoyment. And I love that they're like, yeah, Lindsay, good work. Um, I love that this is going to be something that they're going to focus on. So 86 applications in 12 days sounds like they have a winner on their hands. Wouldn't you say? I I hope it booms. We we need happiness. We need to get back to finding joy. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of one time I took a May master, which was stress and its effects. So my undergraduate degree was psychology. And so it was a one week, like it was all day. <laughs> but what was so nice is that the... Um, faculty member was a counselor. And so we did like a lot of like guided meditation and like go back and take a nap or like here are all the things you can do to mitigate your stress is like the best May master I ever had. I, I finished it so relaxed. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That is the state of the union. So yeah, now we get to move on to this book. You guys have seen it before. You'll see all my flags in it. It's called the culture code. Um, it's the secrets of highly successful groups. It is not written for colleges. So basically Daniel Coyle went and found a bunch of teams and corporations that were killing it for no good reason. So it's not like they were the smartest or they had the most money or whatever. He just was like, what is happening in these cultures so that they are doing an amazing job? And so over the next um, couple of weeks, <clears throat> interspersed with some other things, we're going to be talking about this culture code. But I want to start with what he talks about in terms of sense of belonging cues. So today I want to lead us through this kind of path. Um, Matt, you know, we've talked together, Dr. Sherry Woosley and I've talked, we've talked with Anthony. There's all this literature about sense of belonging. We've been saying like, it's hard to explain what it is. You just know it when you see it, right? And you have to figure out how to, to fix this. And you have to be really sensitive to the ways you're telling students they don't belong. Like we've done all of that. But this book um, really talks about three important pieces of having a team and a, a culture that's successful. And one of them is about that building safety and general uh, bonds of belonging. So can you tell us what the three things are? And then we're going to focus yeah. today on that sense of belonging. So the quick summary of this is, um, as it, it's written, groups succeed not because they're smarter, but because they work together in smarter ways. There are three crucial skills that enable groups to create a culture which promotes success. So the first is build safety, generate bonds of belonging and identity. The second is share vulnerability, establish habits of mutual risk to drive trusting cooperation. And third, establish purpose, use narrative to create shared goals and values. So today we'll talk about build safety. Okay, so stick with me because I'm gonna take you on a journey. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So let's remember, 
I just told you that my major was psychology. So we have all of these different parts of our brain. Um, and we think about the ways we interact with each other in society. So one of the things that we do really often, you guys know about, is kind of signaling to each other. And so the easiest way to think about this is humans do signaling in the same way animals do. If you go to the zoo and you're watching the gorillas and like some of them are the alpha male and some of them are more interested in this, the, not person, gorilla than this gorilla and who's cooperating with each other and who's mimicking and where who's close to each other and who's far away, right? There's all this signaling that anthropologists and sociologists are saying you can know about an animal group just by looking at their signaling. This is true for dogs. Yeah. So, I mean, I just took my dogs to the dog park. That's incredible. I, I love just watching how they interact. And for my dogs who are pretty peppy and, and joyful dogs, and then they'll get around a dog that I don't know why that dog's at the dog park, really, because it's grumpy or, mm -hmm. you know, like, don't get near me. And you just see how they interact. Then you have the dogs who are, you know, again, I don't know why they're there. They're just laying in the dirt, not doing anything. Oh, don't want to interact. Maybe they just want to lay in the sun. That's okay. Yeah. The point is that they're giving off these different kinds of energy, right? And just by watching, you can see that they're sending signals to other dogs. Like, I'm not safe. Don't come near me. I just want to be by myself. I want to play with you, right? So... This book talks about how we do that with each other, how humans are signaling all the time. And one of our deepest, um, like most embedded in our brain things is looking for danger, right? So it's how we survived a long, long time ago. We had to really easily be able to pick, on, pick up on signals that told us, you are not safe. This is dangerous. Be careful. Stay on guard, right? It's the most important signaling for us to pick up on. Well, this book talks about this proto-language that we use, which is just human signaling. And we're using this language to help us recognize and form safe connections. That is belonging cues. So when we're in a group, we're trying to figure out, is this place safe? Do I belong here? Are there hidden risks? Is there something I should be on, you know, on guard against? Because it's pretty dangerous. And so nowadays, you know, we've talked before about the stress cycle where it's like, I used to be a tiger was chasing you. That's dangerous. You run. And then the, the stress cycle is completed. Whereas now it's like, you're in a meeting with a person who's really obnoxious and you just have to like bear that out until the meeting's over, but you don't have right. this like release. Right. So what's really interesting is these days, a really big piece of our risk assessment is what other people think about us. We're always worried about what other people think about us. Our kind of unconscious brain is obsessed with, am I safe? Do I fit? What do other people think? Like, am I an outlier? Are they going to accept me? Um, because it is so natural for us to be fixated on this idea of danger, the only way to lead people into a sense of belonging is through intentional things to overcome this natural trigger. So you just have to remember that everybody is coming from a place of this is dangerous. Am I safe? Right. And they're always yeah, assessing yeah. that, that feeling. And we use a lot of belonging cues. So what this book is saying is like, if you watch a group that belongs together, 
They are going to stand close to each other. They're going to do have good icons tacked with each other. They'll take turns talking. They have different body language than if they were afraid of each other. Um, and they actually have a, a machine that measures this in teams that will tell you, like, as we're listening to this team talking, their pitches are equal. They're taking turns talking. They're looking at each other. They want to be close to each other. These are all what we call those belonging cues that are settling you down to say, you are safe here, you do have a future here, and there's no danger that you need to be concerned about. I love the amount of research that went into this book as they went through and really understanding what makes a great team and what what's going on with this team that doesn't function very well. It yeah. is like, it's like they put us in the dog park. Oh dear. Yeah. Like humans you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they are just like every place. And, and it's really interesting to think about. So we talk about a psychological sense of belonging. If we shift that to say, there is no risk here. You are with your people, right? I like it because I think it gives us a new way to see a student's experience and a new way to be able to isolate the places where they experience fear and that part of the amygdala that's like, oh my gosh, be on high alert. This is not safe, right? Um, and I think it can help us with language. I think it can help us figure out how a student might be experiencing that high risk uh, experience. So what's really interesting, Matt, is I want you guys to think about this too. Matt and I have had the experience of going into a lot of campuses and a lot of different groups. You guys have had this experience too. And I will tell you, I've never had the language to be able to explain it before. I wouldn't have talked about it in terms of safe. I would have said like, this is a healthy team. Um, this is a team they that trust each other. likes each other. They trust each other. But I will say from the moment they walk in the room, you and I have had the experience of being like, they're safe. Like they like each other. They joke with each other. They tease each other. They want to be close to each other. People are allowed to say, I disagree with you. I don't actually think that that's true. My perspective is this, right? I'm just going to go on a limb and say this and you guys can argue with me. Like, like what happens to us as consultants who are watching that is we move into a connection mode, right? We're not on guard. We're not thinking like in my counselor brain, like I've got to manage that person. He's really angry. She's stressed out. They don't like each other. We're not going to get anything done. It is instant because of the way that those groups engage with each other. You and I have also gone into a room several times where, again, I wouldn't have described it this way, but it is real unsafe. Yeah, We're yeah. like, nobody's going to tell the truth in this group. Nobody's going to stand up and say their opinion in this group because I don't understand, but my risk <laughs> spidey senses are like, we're in danger uh, in this group. Not that someone's going to attack us, but it's not a safe place for us to tell the truth about a thing. Um, Matt, I was thinking about one of the most vivid times for me, I was teaching in front of a class of adults uh -huh. And I stood up in front of the class and my risk like sensor was like, oh my gosh, all these people hate you. <laughs> so much so 
that after trying to talk to them for like two minutes, which I'm like, I can usually win people over, right? Like I can be charming. I can win them over. I talked to them for two minutes and I finally was like, Matt, will you teach basically teach this lesson? Because when I stood up, they literally threw down their pens, leaned back in their chair, crossed their arms, started on their phone. And the feeling for me was, this is not safe. I'm not going to win here. Right. I do. But also I do not belong. They are not welcoming me. They are not telling me, Hey, Rachel, you can move to connection. You need to stay in, be alert because you're not one of us. Right. Yeah. So just what, what was it you said about, it's just the, my standing in this group. What is, what is my standing in this group? And, And I mean, you are really great at connecting with people of being able to to win people over. And in this room, it just wasn't, it wasn't happening. The, yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what I appreciate about it is it was such a visceral experience for me to be like, in retrospect, to be able to recognize all of the little, little ways that my, um, Hey, you're in danger brain was like, Nope, this, <laughs> this is not going to work. And you think about for our students who feel insecure who aren't sure if they belong, who aren't sure how other people think about them, if they're allowed to be heard, right? All of those different things, how much more impactful that is for them. And I'm sure if I said to that room, hey, you guys are not welcoming me and I don't feel connected to you, they might be surprised that, like it might take them a while to be like, oh yeah, you're right, we actually don't like you (laughs) because it's so internal. It's just, you really don't belong here, right? You really don't. So we're not trying to be unkind to you. We're just telling you like, "Mm, no this is not the place for you. I'm sorry, Um, Rachel. That was an awful experience. Yeah, it's fine. It's, it's been productive. I mean, helpful in the future. (laughs) Um, Okay. So thinking about how do we um, shift our students' brains from risk assessment to connection. And that's a really important piece that I want to talk about. There are three basic belonging signals that we can send to our students I would encourage you, when we're talking about action items, I would say put these three words in a place where you can see them because you want to, for all of your interactions, be looking at, am I doing these things? Am I com- am I conveying this is a safe place where you are able to fit in and feel connected to us? Okay, so the first one is energy. Are you invested in the exchange that is occurring? So you can imagine if we have a student a first generation student who's asking us a question that we've heard 50 times before. And so we don't actually have to listen to what they're saying. We can just like do something else as they're asking this, like emotionally, like, Oh, but what am I going to do about blah, blah, blah. Right. And you're like, I'm not expending any energy on this interaction. So as soon as you finish whatever you're doing, then I'm going to be like, yes, you can apply late or whatever. What you've said to them, what you've done is heightened their feeling of not being safe. Because they're like, I don't fit here. This makes me anxious. I'm really nervous, right? So energy invested in the exchange. Did you have something you wanted to add to that one? No. Well, I'm I'm thinking back to the example of how awful that room was to you. The energy (laughs) definitely. Yeah, right. Throwing down your pen and like starting on your phone. Super clear signal, Rachel. You're not doing a good job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it, 
It's fine. It really is fine. Okay. Uh Individualization. So treating the person as unique, which you're going to talk more about this in terms of empathy and those sorts of things. But I was thinking about, you know, we've been talking recently about the, um, what is it? The catalog of interventions and how harmful it is when somebody has had an illness, which is why they're in academic recovery or they had a terrible roommate situation or someone in their family got really sick and they come in and you're like, okay, now you're on academic probation, which first of all, my risk indicators are up. Like what you just told me is I don't have a future here, right? So I love those of you who are addressing that, changing the language, Uh, great work. Um, But then also when you're like, and I know about you, I know you're on academic recovery because you don't know how to study and you don't know how to show up to class. So you're gonna have to go to this tutoring thing and you're gonna have to have these meetings. You're gonna... And what that says to me is I totally don't belong here. This person who is saying things about me that are not true, she is not safe. She is not a person I can depend on. She's not trustworthy. And I don't belong here at all. Right? Well, I would also say, Rachel, it's not just that that person isn't safe, but this there is a threat to my goal, right? So so that it's, it's what she's saying or what he's saying is is – going, it's putting me at risk of achieving why I'm here. So that's when you start having all those questions about, um, if, if you would just take time to understand what my situation was, then I'd feel like we're on the same team. But right now, all I hear is, is, um, danger. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because again, as adults in our self possessive, like what is that? Self, I'm self-possessed. Is that what you're saying? That doesn't sound right. Anyway, like self-efficacy, right? Like I have confidence. Like I know who I am. I know what I can achieve. I'm okay. Even in that, when somebody is not listening to me and treating me like I'm a person, I start to feel really worried. Like, oh my goodness, you're not gonna help me. You're telling me there's nothing that can be done here. How much less for our students who start off not being sure And then they come in and you treat them like they're not a person. And they're like, there's an obstacle in my way. And I honestly don't know if I can overcome it. The risk is I cannot be successful because you're not listening to me. I'm a person, right? Or they're hiding behind policy. So as they're talking about all the things that, you know, you need to do because these are our policies, then that's where I, I, that's where my brain goes to like, this is an institution where I'm not safe. It's not just this one person. I can't go find another person. It's actually the policies are against me being successful. The whole culture is telling me like, yeah, sorry. I mean, we, we had a conversation with, uh, I believe she was a registrar and she's like, well, but if we, you know, let that student gave her a pass, then what would happen? Like the, everyone. Chaos. Total chaos. Chaos. Um, okay. The third thing is future oriented, which you guys know, I'm telling you all the time, like, let's speak as though our relationship will continue. So we talk about when you do get off academic recovery, when you do come back next fall, when you do change your major, or when you do find a major you like, right? Like all of the ways we're going to say, I'm always saying, I want for us to say to our freshmen, look around when we graduate, this is the group of people it's going to be right. So the ways that we're saying, Hey, move from this is a person on the outside who's threatening to me to this connection brain Um, and connected brain is when your brain understands we are close. I am safe. We have a future together. And so all the ways that you can say to students, 
you are close to us, you are safe, and we have a future together. That's when they um, when they change. I want to, so there is science in this, which I want to read. It is about the amygdala. So this is the part of your brain that floods your body with all of the hormones when you see, when you have a threat. And it's like, what do you need to survive? Okay, we're going to give you all of these things when you're responding to danger so that you can run, right? Fight or flight, or what is it? Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Those are the new ones. So science has recently discovered, though, that the amygdala also plays a role in building social connections. When you receive a belonging cue, which remember is you're close, you're safe, we have a future together, um, the amygdala switches roles and starts to use its immense unconscious neural horsepower to build and sustain your social bonds. It starts tracking members of your group tunes into their interactions and sets the stage for meaningful engagement. So basically it transforms from this growling guard dog that's supposed to protect you to then being like, hey, now we want to start tracking the people who are valuable to us. They were strangers before, but they're on your team now and that's gonna change the entire dynamic. It's such a powerful shift a top-down change, a reconfiguration of the entire motivational and decision-making system, which is so interesting because it's unconscious. It's like when your brain makes the shift from I'm at risk to, okay, Rachel, now we're in connection building mode, everything changes and you become much more able to receive those belonging cues and be connected and ask for help and tell the truth and do all the things that we want our students to do, which isn't the brain amazing. It's awesome. Well, I was thinking about as, as we've talked a lot and we've talked about how this fits in with the um, student success funnel, right. And that, that process of being very intentional as you've laid it out. So we're going to find them, but then we're going to take time to help them make that feel that connection before we go into solve mode. Yeah, thank you. Because when you and I were talking about this, what we were saying is if you skip connection, they're still in risk mode. So if you skip, skip, skip the connection, when you're saying you need to register, you need to pay your bill, you have to do this thing, student conduct, you shouldn't have done that. You're all they're getting is like, these are all threats to my safety and my thriving every single place along the line. Right. So a really great shortcut as we're talking about what goes into connect, it really is if you think about, so I'm giving them the energy, it's individualization, there's, it's future oriented. Hey, we're going to be, I, I love, so just thinking about some of the students who you worked with, who then years later would come back and, and, and still today send you text messages or yeah. I don't know, Instagram, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and want you to know how successful they're being. Yeah. And it is that unconditional positive regard. Like, Hey, when you are in this space, you are safe with me and I am on your team. So I want to give you a couple of examples of this. And then I would love for you to talk about it in terms of our service quality pieces. Cause I think my goal today is just to give us new ways to assess the cues we're sending to students in terms of sense of belonging. And so we're going to keep talking about it. We're going to talk about how you build that intentionally. But as always, I'm like, first, let's have the framework and the language and the understanding so that we know what we're doing well and what we're not. You guys, these examples in the book are insane to me. One of the reasons I feel so compelled to share them with you is because I'm like, if we can get this right at our institutions, we are going to blow student success out of the water. It's 
unreal. Okay. So I have three, four examples for you. I'm going to try to like condense them down, but I want to give you the data. Okay. In one study they did, they gave a person a moderately tricky puzzle. They had to arrange some stuff on a map. They can work on it as long as they like. They explain the task and then they leave. And then two minutes later, they come back and they have a note, a slip of paper with some handwriting on it. And they say, hey, this note is from Steve. He's also participating. Um, he did the puzzle earlier and he wanted to share this tip with you. And so then I give it to you and then I leave. Okay. Without trying, you start working harder on the puzzle. Areas deep in your brain begin to light up. You are more motivated, twice as much. You work more than 50% longer with significantly more energy and enjoyment. What's more, this glow continues. Two weeks later, you are inclined to take, up, take on similar challenges. In essence, that slip of paper changed you into a smarter, more attuned version of yourself. Here's the thing. Steve's tip is not actually useful. It contained zero relevant information. All the changes in the motivation and behavior you experienced afterwards were due to the signal that you were connected to somebody who cared about you. That's amazing, right? That's somebody That's just being like, hey, I did this earlier and I want to give you like a leg up. Powerful. Okay. Here's another example. Hold on. Can, can we just stop on that for a second? Because yeah, when I think about, so pick, pick the most at risk population on your campus. If you have a student who's been successful their freshman year, who is a representative of that at risk population. Yeah. If they were the ones who wrote a, a little card and handed it to those other 25 students who are like him or her and just say, say, hey, this was a, a challenging class for me, but it changed my life, I'm, you know. Or some... I've been here before, just, hey, introduce yourself to your faculty, you're going to do great, right? Yeah. yeah, it's that tying to the greater good, this connection, you belong here, I see you, right? Yeah, yeah. I think there's so many ways to leverage that you are connected and I'm invested in your success. Okay, here's another crazy one. Two scenarios. This experiment is called, would you give a stranger your phone? Two scenarios. The first one is you're standing at the rain in the rain at a train station. A stranger walks up to you and says, can I borrow your cell phone? The second one is you're standing in the rain at a train station. A stranger approaches you and politely says, I'm so sorry about this rain. Can I borrow your cell phone? Okay. So they're basically the same scenario, whatever. Surely it's not going to have that much of a, a difference, an impact, right? Okay. When Allison Wood of the Harvard Business School performed this experiment, she discovered that the second scenario caused the response rate of yes to jump 422%. Those six words, I'm so sorry about this rain, transformed people's behavior. They functioned exactly the way the people with Steve's tip did in the, the puzzle experiment. This was an unmistakable signal. This is a safe place for us to connect. You hand over your cell phone and create a connection without thinking. So it changes it from what you might be thinking, which is like, oh my gosh, this person's approaching me. Should I give them my cell phone? I'm worried about it. Like what's going to happen? Are they going to mug me? Are they going to run off with it? Two, my brain has now shifted to this is a safe space for us to connect. Of course you can use my phone because now I'm in the like, we're friends, right? Yeah. The empathy. It's just a statement of empathy before you go into the ask. Yeah. Um, the reason, again, that I'm giving you these examples is because I think we can take these experiments and 
and do an amazing job of inviting our students into belonging. Okay, so stick with me two more. In an Australian group that examined 772 patients who had been admitted to a hospital after a suicide attempt, uh, that's the experiment. In the months after their release, half received a series of postcards that read as followed. Dear so-and-so, it's been a short time since you were here at the Newcastle Mater Hospital. We hope things are going well for you. If you want to drop us a note, we would be happy to hear from you. Best wishes and then signature. Over the next two years, members of the group that received postcards were readmitted at half the rate of the control group. So it's, you and I were saying, it's like what happened over the summers of COVID where we had schools that were just saying like, hey, we're thinking about you. We remember you, we want you to come back. That social connection, sense of belonging is so important for them to, to switch over to like, this is the place where we're making friends, right? Okay, last example. This is um, about this call center in India. It's called Wipro. It had a really big problem. So it was like rated super well in India as an employer. It had great salaries. It had high quality facilities. It treated employees well. It gave them food, transportation, social activities. Like they were ranked one of the number one employers in India. They had a persistent problem, which is employees were leaving in droves as much as 50 and 70% every year. And so they're like, what are we going to do? So these researchers are like, okay, we're going to do this dumb experiment. It's totally not going to change anything. The researcher was like, I expected to not have any difference. So they had three groups. The first group on onboarding, they had standard training. And then they had an additional hour that focused on Wipro, the employer's identity. So like, here's what we do and here's what we believe in and here's what's important and here's our history. And then they met a star performer. Here's somebody who's done something really awesome at the company. And then they answered questions. Um, and then at the end of the hour, they got a sweatshirt that had Wipro's uh, logo embroidered on it. Okay, so that's the first group. The second group also got standard training but they had an additional hour focused not on the company, but on the employee. So the trainees were asked questions like, what is, what is unique about you that leads to your happiest times and best performances at work? Or um, imagine you're lost at sea, what special skills might you bring to the situation? I love that question. Yeah. At the end of the hour, they were given a fleece sweatshirt with the Wipro on it embroidered, but underneath it was their name. And then they had a third group, which was a control group, okay? So seven months later, the numbers came in. The researchers were completely shocked. Trainees from group two, that's where they ask about them, right? Were 250% more likely than those from group one and 157% more likely than those from the control group to be still working there. The hour of training had transformed the group group two's relationship with the company. They went from being non-committal to being engaged on a deeper level. And the question is why? And they're like, those are belonging cues. When you say, I see you, you're important, tell me about you. There's energy in my interaction. You're an individual and we see you here for a long time and we're giving you your name on your shirt instead of just our name on our shirt. Totally transforms their ability to be connected and to create that kind of culture. So Rachel, let's just say that you ask students, what's your likelihood or desire to transfer? And you get this population of students who say highly likely to transfer. And then you said, hey, we're going to focus our first year seminar, or we're going to be very intentional about not 
So when I think about my University 100 class, when I was a college student, it was really about me learning the history. Like we had exams on the history of the university yeah. and all the traditions and all. I mean, it was intensely about the school and me having to be integrated into the school, right, not right, right. individualized. Hey, how do you add value to this class? If we're stuck in the ocean, how will you, what skills do you have? Um, I think you could do some, if you just took a small group that said, I don't want to be here, I'm likely to leave. And you just develop some really awesome ways of connecting with them, asking them to share who they are and how could they add value to this institution could change a lot for that school. It'd be really fun. It would be really fun. I love that you were talking about integration, right? Because this is what Dr. Woosley was saying was like, integration is like, hey, shape up or ship out. Like, here's what we do. Learn about us. You're either in or you're out. Well, for some group of students, that's risk. That sounds risky to me. Like, I don't know, actually, if I want to be integrated into your community and what you're doing versus I taught a U100 class and I would be, I started every single class with a question, everybody had to answer the question, right? So where are you from? And if I found myself in your town, what's one thing I would want to do? I found out so many interesting things. Yeah. Or tell me what your family does for Christmas. Does everybody open one present at a time or does everybody, right? So just all of these things, because then you look around and you move into, we're all represented here. We all have a voice and we make this class what it is as opposed to sit down and be quiet and learn about the history of this place that you are fortunate enough that we've allowed you to come, but don't mess out up because if you do, we're totally kicking you out. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I, okay. So just going down these. So uh, a tip from Steve, that idea, how can you have someone who's been down that path before just connect um, yeah. using empathy, the, the way that you, if you need a student to do something, just to connect with them first. So like the cell phone in the rain, um, sending postcards to people who have been a part of a very challenging, personally challenging experience, just to say, hey, we care about you. And then, you know, the Wipro example is just so powerful. So yeah. many ways. I was thinking about how we can use these in res life, how we could use this in uh, in any, whether it's academic development or career development or in our first year seminar. Really love that. So um, ultimately, you know, again, coming back to energy and individualization and, hey, future oriented, we want you to come back. So really powerful. What I love is how this connects with what I've talked about a lot with the five dimensions of service quality. So it's called surf qual. Um, I get really geeked up about it. But, but when I start to apply everything that you've said to surf qual, see a lot of overlap. So just to, to unpack SurfQual real quickly, um, that, that you have in every experience we have as humans, there's kind of five ways that we're assessing that. So if we go to a restaurant or if we're getting onto an airplane, the interaction with um, the people around us, we're looking at it through uh, a lens that that now you've, you've convinced me it's it's really about belonging and it's about safety. So, yeah. so the five dimensions, we'll unpack this um, more later on, but, and how they, they tie in, but, but um, so I'll just say the five dimensions, one's reliability, another is responsiveness. Uh, then you have the um, assurance 
which I'll come back to a little bit. Empathy, like we talked about. And lastly, tangibles. And so these are the five things that we're always assessing. How is this experience? And, and as you've added this lens of, is this a safe experience? Is really connect, important. Right. Like, is this safe for me to connect with this person? So I actually want to start with the first one, because to me, the most, if you want to talk about risk, the thing that makes my risk monitor go off faster than anything else is a lack of reliability, which yeah. to me translates as this person is unpredictable. I don't actually know what I'm going to get. I don't know if they're going to be mad or they're going to be helpful or they're going to be joking with me or that like that unreliability. I don't know. I cannot predict how, what I'm going to say is going to affect this person is really scary, especially in a group, right? Because you can throw out something really innocuous and then somebody responds in a way that you're like, I never saw that coming actually. Yeah. So that's one again, that scares me. I'm looking at it in terms of, is it this individual or is it this culture, this institution that's unreliable? Yeah. Because if I can, you know, find someone else, maybe there's there's a way that I can overcome that by finding someone else who is more reliable, a better advisor or whatnot. But if the institution just doesn't have it together, yeah, then I don't feel safe in the institution. So um, I don't know, the assurance piece, like when when you're meeting with someone and, and the idea of of so the opposite of assurance. Um, they don't have knowledge. They're uninformed. They're rude to me. They don't have a lot of credibility in what they're saying or just overall, I think, I, you know, competence, courtesy, credibility, security, that those are the pieces that make up assurance. And, you know, when, when I started, we've talked about this before, but how do we improve um, student satisfaction with our advising? We just focused on these five things. Every time a student comes to you, really goes to that individualization, take the time to engage that person and be intentional about each one of these pieces. So, yeah, I love that. I do think we should talk about these more in the future. I think there's so many ways that if we look at, so what's happening in my brain is like the um, elements of community, the cues of belonging, right? And then these things of service where we can say, like, if we are listening with empathy, if we are giving assurance, if we have something tangible, those are all ways that we say to a student, don't be afraid. I see you. You belong here. You have a future with us. And so I'm just thinking, I mean, I feel like I have a lot of work to do, given all of those different elements to go through each of our different um, interventions that we provide and the way we talk to school and just say like, hey, I'm going to pin to each one of these components a really specific practice that you can do to help your students with that. So. You guys, I hope that language of safety and of moving your brain from fight, flight, freeze, or fawn and risk, trying to figure out how much of a risk you are into the space of connection where we put down all of that fear and we're more likely to be able to be close and connected and listen and be honest and transparent. I hope that that helps you with that sense of belonging the way it has helped me. Um, in the future, we're gonna talk about how you build that sense of um, belonging, but then also shared vulnerability and some of those other things. But it's a great, um, great book. I'm really sad that I've had it on my bookshelf for I think a year. Um, I was trying to think who told us about it. It was- Kurt. 
Kurt at Emmanuel was like, this happens, you guys, where we're visiting with people or we're talking to people and someone's like, this is a great book. And then the next thing I know, Matt's ordered it for me and it shows up on my desk. So I have a long list of books, um, you know, that I share with you, but this one is really, really good. So I would encourage you to read it. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. It is always so nice to spend time with you. Happy April. Um, have a great day and we will talk to you next week.